0: Hi there, and
1: welcome back to the Health Advocate podcast, episode 13. My name is Tara McDonald, and I'm the web and social media officer here at the Australian Healthcare and Hospitals Association. In this special episode of the Health Advocate podcast, we have a live recording of a panel discussion from the launch of the Australian Centre for Value-Based Healthcare on the 11th of June. The panel discussion is led by AAA CEO Alison Verhoven, with special guests Christabel Saunders, Anne Duggan, Michael Purvan and Terry Simmons. This discussion followed a case study presentation by Dr. Deborah Cole and Susan McKee about Dental Health Services Victoria's value-based healthcare project and its achievements to date in transforming oral health. For more information regarding the Australian Centre for Value-Based Healthcare, please visit www.valuebasedcareaustralia.com.au. by introducing Michael Pavan who is Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services in Tasmania and for his sins is currently Chair of Armac this year. Michael's had a long engagement in health reform but also with AHA so this is Michael. Terry Simons is Deputy Secretary at Turin Department of Health and Terry's responsible for <laughs> leading the work that Victoria is doing on value-based health care and we hope he'll share a little bit of that with us tonight. Ann Duggan is the uh, Clinical Director at the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality and Healthcare and she's also a gastroenterologist. She's been involved and led the development of the Australian Atlas on Healthcare Variation and so we'll be interested to hear her perspective on safety and quality and how that influences value-based care. And then Professor Christabel Saunders from University of Western Australia. She's internationally recognised for her work as a research-oriented cancer surgeon but is also leading a very large project on value-based health care, also involved with iChong in cancer care and is involved in a project or a small piece of work that some of us are working on with All an international project on value-based care in cancer, which we'll hear a bit more about in the next few weeks when that All Australia report gets launched. So I want to start off by saying, Michael, if you'd heard Deb and Sue's presentation before last week's RMAC meeting or the week before, what would you tell your colleagues at ARC about value-based healthcare and what they should be thinking about?
0: Thank you. It's very important to always recognise that RMAC is representative of the Federation. Yes. So it's a hydra. It's seven heads that don't necessarily all come at things from the same perspective and the same direction. So we actually did have a conversation about value-based health care at the last ARMAC meeting two weeks ago. It is one of the six key areas of reform under the Heads of Agreement between the Commonwealth and the States that will be embedded in the next National Health Reform Agreement. And the presentation from Deb I think reflects a lot of what as individuals and as a body Armex CEOs have encountered which is there are some amazingly positive and encouraging examples of the application of value-based healthcare to individual services and individual cohorts of patients and what the CEO's struggling with is how do you scale that up to a system level. How do you do value-based healthcare across a diverse and complex system where we have private patients in public hospitals as well as massive service engines, particularly around teaching hospitals and so on and so forth. And I think that's the bit that we're still working our way through, is that perspective. It's also, at that level, a challenge, if you like, to balance five different perspectives on what is value. Uh, The dental service is a great example of what represents high value to a patient but at a system level an individual patient's assessment of value will be different to what consumer's body might determine value. An example would be and Terry sitting next to me I don't mean to, to poke you at all but an example might be the discussion we're having nationally around very high cost gene therapies. An individual patient will regard a 50-50 chance offered by one of those high-cost therapies, $500,000 for a single injection, as high value. But what we learn from clinical senates in Western Australia and Queensland and the citizens' juries in the UK is, as a body, consumers would regard that as low value. So how do you reconcile those two views, as well as what the funder, the provider and the clinicians regard as high value? we would always put the patient as the primary determinant on top of that. What patients think is value, should be our beacon, if you like, our navigation point. But there's no dismissing that there are four other perspectives that at a system level, you actually need to consider in pursuing this. Or do we say to ourselves, as Dental Services Victoria have, let's start. Let's start with a service, a cohort, a condition, and do that nationally and build from there, rather than trying to come up with an agenda that approaches this as a whole system.
1: Thanks Michael. Well I might move to Terry now and Terry you've got an example in your state now of a couple of years of history. How are you building on that? What are you planning to do in Victoria and how do you see this rolling out at a state level? As Michael's noted, it's really difficult to scale up from a model to a bigger model.
2: What are you doing? Thanks, Alison. Uh, So we're not proposing to scale this up immediately at a statewide level for reasons that Michael's kind of suggested, and I think DHSV would also probably suggest. I think we need to find, or we're trying to find, the cohorts, and they're not that hard to find. Where a range of things come together to make this possible. So examples for us would be stroke. It's not the single biggest candidate in terms of costs in the system or Although I might add in terms of a driver of disability in the Western world, strokes, uh, you know close to the top or second, but we have a number of factors for success. So we have good data, we have a stroke registry, we have good evidence-based models of care, we have engaged clinician leaders and consumers who are involved together in a clinical network, and we know there are examples of where our current funding models and system arrangements get in the way of good quality care. So from our point of view, I guess we're looking for candidates where we can make a start. Orthopedics and musculoskeletal conditions or another, and I might just touch on cancer because DHSV's example is a terrific one but the threads I think of value-based healthcare are not themselves new and we draw on a much longer history of great work that has contributed to where we are now. If I touch briefly on the work around optimal care pathways for cancer, pathways that were developed with consumers in the room, working with clinicians, integrating evidence and preferences around what kind of pathway it is that patients should follow from initial diagnosis through to hopefully to recovery. And that work laid a basis at a high level, I think, for thinking about value. We have now been able to measure through putting together Commonwealth and state data, very in, against those pathways at each stage of a patient's journey, together with data about cost, together with data about survival and so for bowel cancer for example and I can't think of any other condition for which we can do that at this stage we can show that adherence to evidence-based pathways leads to better rates of survival and cheaper total costs of care and that feels like a good endpoint to aim for but it's building on work that's occurred over a long period of time so i guess my point is to say we're not attempting to create a whole of system transformation around value-based healthcare we're drawing on threads that exist we're picking examples of clinical communities uh, where patients and, and clinicians are already working together on the elements of value-based healthcare and looking to strengthen that and develop that and I think over time build that into the kind of vision that I think DHSC has set out in front of us.
1: Thanks, Terry. And look, I was going to go to Anne, but I might actually just come to Christabel quickly, given the work that you're doing on cancer, and then I'll go to Anne after that. Christabel, do you want to reflect on some of the things Terry's talked about, but also talk about some of the work you're doing?
3: Yeah, so we we set out in Western Australia in a kind of a slightly different pathway. I'm I'm a clinician and I'm also an academic and so I became interested in the area and we happened to get a research grant but the aim of the research grant is to try to embed value-based healthcare in normal practice and we decided to pick the four large cancers, which I, I have developed data sets for, breast, prostate, colorectal, and lung. And then we picked one poor outcome cancer. We picked ovarian. And to be honest, that's actually the easiest cancer to do, where we develop things from the beginning. But as a clinician, I saw that patients move across the system, both public and private, and I work both in the public and private system. And often they'll have some of their diagnostic work in one, some treatment in one, some in the other. So we decided to try to do it across the system. So we picked some, if you like, pilots to do it. And very briefly, the learnings from it were As much as you heard from Deb and Susan, there's no, it's very easy to get clinician buy-in and consumer buy-in and healthcare buy-in. I mean, everybody thinks it's a great idea. It's just actually, how do you do it? You know, how do you actually physically do it? So some of the big challenges have been around IT. That's a really, you know, how to collect the data properly, how to embed the data in various hospital systems, how to manage that, who owns the data. That's probably one of our most difficult issues around collecting patient reported outcome measures. When we started doing it in a little pilot, our researchers kind of gave me all the prompts and said there you are christopher you can use these in the patient consultation well you know i'm not going to use 20 pages of things so we you need to work out a way that data that's collected can be fed back to the clinicians for that clinician patient interaction that's really meaningful and, and you have some highlights of what is important and then for the services once you start getting service-wide data how you feed that back to services so it's not a witch hunt you're not doing very well it's really how can you improve things and you know the sort of star star wish you're doing really good at this really good at that but how would you like to improve something else so you have to look at it at those levels uh, as well as then from us as a research project we're also collecting the data and looking at how we can use it in a research way to help people improve so we're probably at a similar point in the journey as you are in dental, I think. We're no more advanced. I don't think we're still feeling our way. But as I say, I guess the unique thing about us is trying to combine that public and private, because I think that is how Australian patients, particularly in cancer, where we know that 50% of cancer care is private and 50% is public and people move between the two.
1: And Christabel, are you involving the primary care sector as well in this project?
3: Not much, and that's probably one big um, flaw that we have. We have got some engagement, we've had a lot of engagement with consumers. From primary care, it is harder to know where that engagement is. And I think in cancer care that's often the way GPs particularly are very keen on in, in being involved in prevention and messages around that. They're very happy to be involved in screening and diagnosis, and they're happy to be involved in long-term care, but that acute phase that they're generally not. So we haven't probably yet worked out how to do it. I guess the other learning i just briefly mention is the thinking about how to measure the costings and that's another thing that we're really struggling with at the moment so we're starting a project in one of our public hospitals to try to do this time-driven activity-based costing and try to work out a different way of doing that but I'm not a health economist and that for me is one of the most difficult ways of understanding how in depth we should do that to be able to really give ourselves good data on the value of the improved services that we have.
1: Thank you. Anne, safety and quality and the work that you've done on the atlas in, of variation in healthcare how do you see this feeding in and what do you see as the ultimate goal for the safety and quality commission in being involved in discussions around value?
4: Well I feel as I'm the biggest optimist on the, the panel I mean I see that we've done a great job in Australia, we have the third highest life expectancy of OECD countries and we've had rather than rest on our laurels we've done a whole lot of work in trying to improve things so I think the environment's right now for this work. That's the Quality in Australian Healthcare Study back in '95. I think we recognised that we had adverse outcomes, and 50% of it was preventable, and then we moved on to looking at how we do hospital-acquired complications and how much it costs, and that's, the last study showed it was sort of 4 billion and 9% of our expenditure, and that's safety, so we've, we've got opportunities to improve and then the Atlas looked at quality because people don't come into the hospital just to be safe, they want an expected outcome and we've seen huge variation. And while we've done that, we've actually, I think, we're now in a situation where we've got much better infrastructure to make big change. I mean, the accreditation of, of our hospitals and, and day facilities means that we've now got a very system that is focused. You can't function if you don't partner with consumers, you don't have comprehensive care. Overlying that is is governance. So we really have the infrastructure to actually really make a change. So often there are bright ideas in health, but you don't have the system and the ducks lined up. Uh, And I think we have much more lined up. We've done, the Commission's done work on registries, we have Better data systems than we have. A lot of it, yes, is still a measuring process, but we do measure outcomes. We are doing work on PROMs and PREMs. My, my view is that we have almost made the environment much more fertile. I think clinicians much more understand variation now. You can have the conversation about value. You talked about the, the bowel cancer screening. Well, uh, as a gastroenterologist, my colleagues are still reeling at the, the realisation that we've got a thirty-fold variation in NBS-funded colonoscopies according to where people live, and it's not can't be about access. So I think that there's great opportunities there and the work of the commission can certainly can support that and there's lots of work being done by other groups. So you mentioned that
1: variation in colonoscopies one of the interesting challenges that we've had at AHA as we've started to work on our papers on value-based health care was to start shifting the thinking from focusing just on low value care to having a dialogue around high value care how do you see that panning out and how do you see that being explored in the work you're doing at Safety and Quality Commission.
4: Well out of the um, the colonoscopy data we've got clinicians together and different stakeholders, consumers, etc., and, and developed that colonoscopy clinical care standard. And um, that was also built on some of the work that the G Society was doing about certification and recertification. So it was a nice synergy recognising that the objective of colonoscopy was to prevent bowel cancer or detect early polyps. So that sort of work, where you've also got indicators and you've made it now mandatory that that standard within accreditation really has the capacity to drive that conversation about value. You can look at waiting lists and you can start to say, well, what's the value that you're trying to, to achieve here and how are you doing it, I think it is, is the way to engage clinicians in that discussion.
1: Michael, I'm going to come back to you because we did briefly touch on primary health and primary health care engagement in these discussions and it would seem to me if we're starting to look for opportunities to have conversations around high value care, one place to start having those discussions is with primary care providers. So what do our colleagues at Armac think about that and how might we progress some of those conversations. There's some PHNs in the room, there are community health leaders in the room, they're keen to hear what you're going to say about that.
0: So one of the blessings of uh, being in that funny little island to the south of the rest of Australia is that we have one state-run health service, we have one university, and we have one primary health network. So if I want to have a conversation around a patient-centred care model or even, as we have been having, a conversation about a trial of a value-based health intervention around a particular condition and cohort of patients, that's four people in the room. And their consultative mechanisms beyond that So it's been very interesting being that close to primary health care as well as having some direct connections into because of a thing that was called the Tasmanian Health Assistance Package, a little gift from a former federal government that we probably won't see again. The, The state was intimately involved in a lot of projects where the GPs were actively engaged in the delivery of care, particularly before and after care of patients that were moving through the acute system recognising that even in a place which is really, you know, in in Victorian and New South Wales terms, half an area health service or local health district. So being able to do it at that local level, at that very, very local level, and being able to get everyone together comparatively easy, we were able to identify individual patients who were being mishandled in the system, who were having disjointed patient journeys. And in fact, in, the, in some instances, clinicians were able to name them. So the conversation at Armac, of course, particularly with uh, the Secretary from Victoria and the Director General from New South Wales there, are talking about much bigger systems where they don't get the opportunity to have that sort of micro conversation that I have. Uh, so they have to rely on doing that by a policy and by delegation to local areas. And I think, I'm not sure about Victoria, there's probably a bit of variation how successful those conversations are at a local level from district to district. But recognising how important it is to have that nexus well established with primary care. And these days also, with residential aged care and with the NDIS is just rapidly coming to the fore as to the patients that we're all struggling with are the ones who are moving across multiple systems, public, private, NDIS, resi aged care, and so on. And until such time as we can get an overview of their whole journey, we're not going to be able to get them an optimal experience out of that journey. There'll always be a bit of it that's broken and unseen. Till we can see the whole journey, we won't be able to get the most benefit for them out of it.
1: Thanks, Terry, I know in Victoria you've actually had the opportunity to have more of a system view of patients moving across primary care acute care through the ambulance services and clearly in the stroke project you're talking about you're looking sort of more holistically than just the acute care sector but it strikes me also that there's possibly some conversation I'll be interested to have your reflections on how you've managed to engage clinician leaders in the process Deb and Sue highlighted the role of clinicians in the cultural change if you like around this what's your experience of that and how have you managed to pull together the different groups and bring them to the table to talk y sí.
2: I agree with the comments that have been made earlier. I don't think it's a hard conversation to start. I think if government or departments or agencies like Anne's want to have a conversation about value waste outcomes for patients, my experience is we're pushing it an open door. Clinicians have been waiting for governments to come to the table for a conversation about how to improve care and get beyond some of the more narrow approaches that have been applied before. That doesn't mean it's kind of, Christabel has said, you know, there's a whole world of pain around how we then go on to solve those problems. But I have not found any resistance at all to those conversations. And I might say sometimes people begin by being, in my opinion, overly cautious about talking about dollars and funding. I don't think there's any need to be overly cautious about that. Very few of our senior doctors do not work in both the public and private systems. They're well used to the value of money. They also see waste every single day. Not only the doctors, but everyone working in the system sees waste every day. So I don't think there's any problem with raising the issue. I think the issue is about being clear at the outset it's not a cost-cutting exercise it's a case of getting resources deployed for the best possible outcomes and that is not something in fact it's something we know we're not doing at present and I think as long as that is the objective I don't see any difficulties with engaging and had no experience with that I'll just finish on a practical note which is around clinical networks most states and territories I think do have some version of this and I think they are an existing mechanism for dealing with variation in care and they are the groups that we've gone to first around stroke for example it is conversations in the clinical network Work and with consumers who are both in the clinical network and around it they are the conversations that have informed and driven the early parts of our kind of design work around strike
1: thank you and clinical registries and clinical networks how do you see them engaging in this space and what do we need to do to ensure that clinical registries in particular are fit for purpose for discussions around value-based healthcare
4: Well, I think we all agree clinical registries are very important and there's a great deal of enthusiasm to develop clinical registries and we've got some very good registries developed by clinicians and I think they make an important, Um, they are sort of in many ways what we really want for major conditions to be able to measure and uh, you can look at the stroke registry, the hip registry, the ANS registry have all been very, very useful. I think that they play a great role. If I can just go back to a point you made about engaging clinicians, the analysts of healthcare variation used a clinical group for each of the topics we did, and we had great enthusiasm and interest by clinicians, and many of those then went on to assist us with the development of clinical care standards that the Commission has developed. So part of it is there's a group of clinicians who already understand variation very well, and they're the people who can actually drive the change as well. So I, I think... Though we want to do a great deal, we have to do it also at the coalface. And I I think that it's... I agree with you. I think in many ways it's pushing an open door once you explain and provide data. And again, going back to your point, registries are a great way of providing data, outcome data.
1: Thank you. And Christabel, could I harass you and ask you to reflect on the public-private engagement, that sort of cross-sector engagement that often doesn't seem to happen. It's sort of like the two separate parts never to meet. What have you learnt from that engagement?
3: Well, both are engaged, but both don't engage with each other. And it's not just one or the other either. I mean, cancer is really all I know about. I'll just put my hand up. I don't know about much else. But if you look at a patient with cancer, it is likely in most places in this country that they'll have a lot of their diagnostic workup done in a private radiology imaging service. They'll have their pathology sent to a private pathology provider. They might have two or three of those in different times. Their follow-up may be again through private imaging, for example. They will probably have have most of their care in one or the other but can move between the two most radiotherapy practices in this country now are private practices so most radiotherapy is delivered by private providers in this country there's very few public providers left patients might not see that as different because they go to the same hospital to have it done but it does make a difference and it makes it quite complex the other I think really important thing that's come out of a lot of work that for example all can has been doing is and came out a lot before the election was the costs of cancer care and that's what the patient sees and that's one of the really important things I think we need to think about and so for many patients the cost of having cancer is around $20,000 in the first year of diagnosis and around 10% of patients that we looked at in Western Australia recently had financial catastrophe in other words more than 10% of their annual income went in the cost of their cancer care and largely that's in medical expenses and it's largely around those diagnostic and surgical procedures and they may be particularly in patients in regional and rural areas and out of metropolitan areas they're the ones that suffered most as well where there aren't the big public teaching hospitals they go to small hospitals and a lot of this care is that's what they have to have so I do think that's a really important area we need to think about and that for patients is a lot of value. Thank you so AWHA
1: regularly goes to meet with health ministers and shadow ministers in the Commonwealth and the states and territories some of you meet with them too but with your own hat with your private hat on not your work hat if you were giving me a suggestion as to a conversation I should have with the health minister or shadow minister. What would you tell me, Michael, about value-based healthcare?
0: Oh, can I go last? <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Christabel, what would you tell me? <laughs> well, no, I don't want to go first No, either. Okay, who'd like to be first? Okay, Terry's going to be brave. Uh, I've had
2: some practice at this one. Um, <laughs> My, my suggestion would be perhaps not to lead off with value-based health care, as in capital V, capital B uh, health care, but to be talking about improving outcomes. I have found ministers, and I've now had the conversation with a couple of them, that they're wary about two things. They're wary about, and some of this, uh, you know, kind of political persuasion issue, but... They're wary about importing US managed care, cost-cutting models, and they've heard stories about value-based purchasing in the US and crude financial penalties and incentives and they think that's what this game is about, or at least that's what they've heard. And so I think it can take some time to kind of work through that. And the other thing is I think a bit of awareness around FADS, and that is the language that's been used. And I think it's important to root this conversation, as I said before, in threads of work that have a long history and a firm grounding in healthcare. Work around outcomes, work around reform of funding models, work around evidence-based care, work around integration of care across acute and primary. That's all very safe territory. I think what's new with this model is actually putting it together. Sometimes people hear it and they say, we've done this before. This is process improvement. This is just funding reform. This is just outcomes management. We're talking about this for decades. But I don't think we have been... It's true that each element has been talked about before, but we have been far from routine or consistent about talking about all of them together and how they <laughs> reinforce each other. And that, I think, is new. But I think if we can first ground it in those things, it becomes a much safer conversation with ministers. But there are some hurdles there to get over, so I think the tactics of this conversation are
1: important. Thank you. And look, that's the reason why we've attacked a definition, if you like, of value-based healthcare and also tried to look at Australian examples in the work we're putting forward. And we're really keen to have feedback on the issues briefs that we've put out. We don't see these as sort of the definitive piece of work. We see these as conversation starters. So we would invite you to respond to them if you feel so inclined. Anne, have you got some words
4: of wisdom for me for a minister or a shadow minister? Well, uh, currently we fund according to activity at a clinician level, I'm thinking about. I think the MBS review is a fantastic thing, but I do wonder whether we should be funding in a way that we fund thinking more than doing. And so I'd be saying that if you want value-based care, you also want to actually have your system. Unless you're going to change it radically, and I think we're going to do it incrementally, you want to promote people thinking, and I have one of my passions is that we actually should start to be thinking about talking to people about what I think is going on. The old fashioned idea of what the diagnosis is, that, or provisional diagnosis, that justifies the activity. And I think we've lost that. We've got so carried away with doing stuff that that's why we've lost a lot of value in healthcare because we've got really availability to do things and we do it. But if we had a conversation where we said to explain to the patient why we did it and you said something that clearly made no sense, like trying to do a colonoscopy at a well 20-year-old, they would say, because, you know, just the provisional diagnosis of bowel cancer, they suddenly say, well, that doesn't make sense. But yet we do things now and we don't really say to patients why we're doing it. We're just saying it's... I think you should have it. So I suppose I'd be saying, It'd be going back to the idea of value in the way we remunerate and asking having higher expectations of what people are doing in that consult.
3: Thanks. Christabella, you're brave enough now. Thank you. Well, are, there aren't any politicians here tonight, are there? No, no, we didn't ask. Politicians did <laughs> seem to respond to stories, don't they? <laughs> yeah. And so I like the idea that you're giving some really good examples of how value-based healthcare can work. It might also be interesting to give some examples to start where things have been really bad and really disjointed. Not only is that really terrible for the patients to hear the patient's voice but it's terrible for the system as well it's expensive and it's demoralizing for those people who are working in the system as we all know and then to try to demonstrate how that can be improved and how efficient care is both better for the patient and cheaper for the system
1: thank you and Michael you get the last word now
0: It's interesting hearing Terry's reference to the the risk that comes with talking about value-based healthcare as as being yet another fad. And in fact, it was one of the RMAC CEOs last week who referred to it as uh, value-based healthcare is the new black. I think, if you like, the forum or the the structure of value-based healthcare is, amongst other things, a fantastic Trojan horse to get into that conversation about the patient's experience. Because you're right, politicians focus on a couple of things. One is good news, and they do love good news, uh, even when they have to create it. So more than a new fad, I think, and as we were discussing before the session started very briefly, it's not a funding model, it's not a policy, it's not a social movement, it's actually all of those things. And that's what makes it different, uh, the coordinated care trials, care homes, all those things, where we've tried to address some of those challenges that we've talked about today, but not in a coordinated, integrated way, which is sustainable. And I think that's the difference. If we do it properly, it's a sustainable approach that we just have to keep going back and as dental services have found when you monitor the data and you can see the clinicians starting to go back to the way they used to practice using the data to coach to encourage to bring the system along in what is a better experience for the people delivering the service as much as it is for the patient
1: Thanks very much, Michael. And we do invite you quite seriously to come back to us with comments on our issues briefs. We'd love some ideas about what we might work on next. In particular, some of us at AWHA are interested in looking at workforce issues in value-based health care, but we need some partners to do that with, so we're really interested to talk to you about that. And ongoing, we'd love to keep having a conversation with you about value-based healthcare, but and I thank Christabel and Terry, Michael, Deb and Sue for great presentations. Thanks for coming.